Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily. The Eurovision scandals, sagas, and shocks. From the fading light of life, right like a Conchita was a very divisive. I suppose, performer for a lot of people, and in particular, Russia. Um, They were saying that this isn't family viewing. Hungary have removed themselves because from the competition because they said it's not a family competition anymore. In its 67 years, the contest has seen its fair share of controversies, calumnies and calamities. A lot of people were very upset that the fact that an Irish act was coming to the United Kingdom singing in Irish, which was seen as being very defiant against the British government. I'm Fiannan Sheehan, and today I'm joined by our very own Eurovision enthusiast extraordinaire, Gareth Mulhall, from the Indo-Daily, to discuss song contest scandals you didn't know about. So Gareth, you are the Johnny Logan of Eurovision Trivia, triumphs and tribulations, one would have to say. Uh, we're going to look at some of the major contributions o- over the years and songs have features very prominently and Ireland is in there. Tell us about 20 years ago, we had a bit of an old plagiarism row. We did indeed, Fiona. Um, you might remember Mickey Joe Hart won Eurosong, as it was called, you know, Eurostar at the time. And he went on to represent Ireland with his song, uh, We've Got the World Tonight. We've got- However, before he even set set foot on the stage at Eurovision, um, he was hauled up in front of the EBU Reference Committee because it was deemed that his song sound very much like the Olsen brothers who won for Denmark in 2000 with the song Fly on the Wings of Love. Fly on the wings of love. So the reference committee met and they said by the skin of his teeth he got through uh, uh, and they said it was almost like plagiarism. So we had one case there but that's not the only time that Ireland's... Yeah, we've had another incident that mirrored the plotline of Father Ted and their own uh, Euro song My Lovely Horse. So tell us about Eddie Friel in 95. 1995, Ireland was going possibly for a fourth victory in a row. Eddie Friel won the National Song Contest with a song called Dreamin'. Dreamin'. Dreaming on a silver sea of moonlight Magic fills the night Melodies of light when I'm dreaming 
However, a 60s folk American singer called Julie Fox said, uh, hello, this song is somewhat like my one called Moonlight. Moonlight, moonlight You and me on the magic sea of moonlight And that was dominating all the newspapers around Europe, to be quite frank, because they were going, can Ireland win again? And I think Ortiz deemed that look, we, we'll only worry about it if Eddie wins the Eurovision and they knew he wasn't. He didn't even finish in the top 10. Bar a little blip in the voting where Sweden sort of gave him 10 points, he didn't factor anywhere. So as a result, lucky escape for Ireland there. Yeah, there was even an argument that it wasn't even the best song coming out of Ireland no, that, that year. So, but arguably the greatest song by the greatest act in Eurovision history is ABBA bursting onto the scene 1974 with Waterloo. But it wasn't all that popular back home. No, it wasn't. And Apple was sort of like at the forefront of a backlash from the Swedish public because they were a really popular band in their home country. They actually, fun fact, they had actually tried to enter the Eurovision Song Contest the previous year, got beaten into third place with the song that ring, ring, ring that went on to be a huge hit for them. But when they won the Eurovision, they were singing in English because they wanted to have access to a bigger world market. And as a result, when they won the competition, there was protests on the street of Stockholm going, this is not good enough. This is not patriotic and we're not happy with it. And the Eurovision should not come to Sweden. So the biggest song from Eurovision actually created one of the biggest controversies of Eurovision as well. Same year, 1974, there was a rather unheralded Portuguese uh, entry and after the goodbye, but it played a prominent role in politics back home. did indeed, yeah. The song that year in 1974 was by, and excuse my pronunciation, Paolo de Calvaro. Um, he wrote or he performed a song and in the national selection and also then in the Eurovision, he had a carnation in his lapel. And when he removed the carnation from his lapel, it was actually a sign to the left-leaning military people in uh, Portugal to begin what is known as the Carnation Revolution, which was against their dictator. So that was like a huge moment for Portugal, you know, uh, for their politics and for their future standing in Europe. And it is one of the biggest political acts at a Eurovision Song Contest because it was very deliberate. Yeah, we're kind of used to the Eurovision becoming very political in, in, in recent years. You'd have to say, no, no disrespect to Kalush Orchestra winning last year, but there was a strong solidarity behind Ukraine uh, as well. But also we saw an incident back in 2015. Yes, if you go back to both 2014 and 15, um, if you look at the artists who were performing for Russia. When they came on to perform, it was the Tom Machevi sisters in 2014. They were two 16-year-old girls who were singing for the country. They were booed 
from their performance. They were booed every time they got 12 points. Russia, La Russie! Ah, our lovely twins, they are through, and their lovely blonde hair. Russia have 100% success rate in qualifying for the final. Oh, audience don't seem to like that. And it got to the point where they actually had the presenters on the night had to say, hold up people here. You know, this is a song contest. Try and leave the politics at the door. However, fast forward one year and we're in Vienna. At this stage, the whole Crimea annexation had been taking part in Russia and Ukraine. Tensions had been building. And as a result, Paulina Garganaro, who was singing for uh, Russia that time, she was leading the contest for quite a long time and the 12 points were gushing in and people were going, "Uh uh-oh, we're possibly going to Russia. The audience again started booing. From Russia, go to Belarus. Congratulations. Thank you. To the point where Conchita Verst, who was one of the, the presenters that night from the green room, she actually had to tell the people in the in the audience, stop it, guys, this is not on. So there is this sort of like the 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 Eurovision fans are very politically in tune with what's going on, but sometimes you have to separate it that this is a song contest, not a political contest. So there has been quite a lot of booing and quite a lot of been people have been very vocal, you know, about Russia. However, that audience reaction is not a new concept. We can go back to the early 70s and an Irish language song, which which prompted a response. Yeah, so if you remember back in the early 70s, this is when the Troubles in Northern Ireland started to evolve. We had Dana won the contest in 1970, and then it got to 1972. The contest had been held in Edinburgh, and Orti was like, I'd say they're probably on a mission to try and send an Irish language song. In the national final that year, I think there's around about 10 songs in it. I'd say six, seven of those songs were in Irish. The winner on the night was Sandy Jones, and she went to Eurovision singing the song Ciolan Gra. When she performed in Edinburgh, and you can't sort of see it from the camera angles, but a lot of people were very upset that the fact that an Irish act was coming to the United Kingdom, singing in Irish, which was seen as being very defiant against the British government. And as a result, several people left the auditorium when she was performing and came back in after her song. She didn't go on to win the Eurovision Song Contest, but it was very deliberate um, actions and very sort of uh, visual actions by the people there in the audience that night. You reference Conchita Wurst. Tell us why Conchita Wurst was such a significant figure and, and that win uh, for Austria in 2014 mattered. Mm. Conchita was a very divisive I suppose, performer for a lot of people. And it sort of brought to the fore the differences within Europe in regards to LGBT issues. And a lot of state broadcasters in some of the countries, and in particular Russia, Hungary, um, they were very much sort of saying that this isn't family viewing because you had a, what from all accounts, the way the camera angles were showing it, wonderful silhouette of a woman, this amazing voice coming out, and all of a sudden the lights hit you and it is a woman with an amazing beard that would give me beard envy, to be quite honest with you. And it 
Conchita's participation brought a lot of LGBT and trans issues to the forefront. Conchita's not a transgender act. It was very much, you know, a a vaudeville, very much a, I suppose, a, a drag queen performance. But it was done so well. And this was the thing that sort of struck a nerve with sort of a lot of the dictatorships within Europe. Even like the show was being broadcast in China and they had concerns about showing Conchita because it sort of goes against the political standpoints and the political viewpoints for people. So that's why Conchita was very, she was very controversial. And when she accepted the trophy, she made reference to this and she goes, you know who you are. You're not comfortable with me, but we are hashtag unstoppable we are unity and we are unstoppable and that sort of has played out across Europe to the point where countries like Hungary have removed themselves because from the competition because they said it's not a family competition anymore LGBT issues though we can argue started to become prominent in the Eurovision in Dublin. The last time we hosted the the contest back in 1997, the then Point Theatre uh, in the Dublin Docklands, Ronan Keating Ronan. and Carrie Crowley, now uh, of, of uh, Oscar-nominated on Colleen Kuhn fame, uh, hosted on, on that occasion. Dublin for the 1997 Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Carrie Crowley. And I'm Ronan Keating, and this is the... We nearly won again on on that night, but there was another standout moment coming from Iceland. Yeah, it was the very last performance of the night, and just to put it into context, this was the first year where five countries, I think it was, were introducing televoting as opposed to having a jury. So as a result, some of the countries were going, well, what might sit well with the televoting audience? And Iceland decided, well, do you know what? We're pushing the boat out. And they had a gentleman called Paul Oscar, and he was the first out gay person to perform at Eurovision. Not saying there wasn't other gay people over the years, but he was the first out and proud com- uh, person at the competition. Uh, his song, Mein Hinsi Danza, uh, My Last Dance, it was, how would I say this? It woke Eurovision up, to be quite honest with you. London He was dressed in sort of pleather from head to toe and he had five dancers around him in sort of latex um, latex costumes. And Paul was getting very excited on the stage and he actually does a, a crotch grab, which is, I suppose commonplace in rap culture now but back in 1997 when we're all sitting down all the family around the TV and there he is a man from Iceland grabbing his crotch and his backing singers rather provocatively playing on the sofa behind yes. him and, and, and so on it probably did mark an occasion where the Eurovision became about the performance as a whole and, and the, the, the presentation and, and the staging that we're now more, more familiar with than, than merely the song Exactly. And I think during the 90s, Eurovision went through a change because um, it had no longer been the competition where if you went to Eurovision, you were guaranteed a massive hit afterwards. And I think as a result of that, then countries are going, how can we actually make a hit from being at Eurovision? So they decided to go down a very modern route. And Paul Oscar at the time was 
ahead of his time to be quite honest with you I'd say if he had done that performance maybe five years later he probably would have been higher up the scoreboard The following year though there was a, a big breakthrough performance 1998 tell us why that one stands out yeah, 1998, a number of reasons uh, were in Birmingham because the United Kingdom had won in Ireland. It was the first year where, it was the last year, sorry, that the orchestra was actually at the Eurovision Song Contest playing the songs. But the most important thing was the biggest act that any country had heard of before the contest was from Israel. It was Dana International, not to be confused with Dana Domestic, as we call our own Dana. Um, Dana International a trans artist was formerly a boy, had an operation, turned into this fantastic, glorious singer called Dan International. She was selected in Israel to represent them in Birmingham. Now, there was a huge backlash by the very conservative elements of Israeli uh, politics and Israeli culture about having her represent them at Eurovision. Viva Maria, viva Victoria. But she came with the song Diva and it was such an upbeat song. She didn't use the orchestra that year because she had a backing track, but that was such a dance anthem it was. And she went there and did all the press conferences and was very upfront and honest about everything that it had done. And this was the first time where transgenderism had been on such a, a major stage. And then she went on in the most dramatic of fashions. The voting that night was all over the place and I went down to the very last vote and she won on the night. I went on to have a huge hit with that song all across Europe. We've also seen kind of allegations of vote rigging being quite prominent in, in the last decade. We'll get to last year. Tell us about 10 years ago on Azerbaijan. Yeah, so last uh, 2013, the contest has been held in Malmo uh, and a story broke because I was actually I was in Malmo Forest and I was reporting on it and a story broke and it was in all the, the, the Swedish papers at the time and it, it alleges that they had a video of somebody speaking in Russian in a cafe in Lithuania trying to buy uh, Lithuanian students to go out and vote for the uh, Azeri song that year which was Farid Mamadov and his song Hold Me Now um, and the allegations are is that they were trying to, to get students to go out and vote in their numbers for this. Now, the EBU saw the video of this and as a result, they said nothing happened on the night because they said their own safeguards, which they have in place, which try, which looks at voting irregularities, whether or not it's in the televote and the jury, kicked into place. No official action was taken against Azerbaijan because they said that the Azerbaijan uh, state broadcaster had no links to this video which has been shown all over Scandinavia and as a result no action was taken against them. Again last year we saw Azerbaijan feature as one of six countries Azerbaijan, Georgia, Montenegro, Poland, Romania and San Marino they had their jury votes removed. Mm. You might have remembered on the night that um, normally what happens at Eurovision is is that if they have a problem contacting the jury they always say sorry, we should have been talking to Azerbaijan now. We'll come back to them in the end. That didn't happen on the night. They just went, sorry, 
uh, we can't get Azerbaijan, but I have their votes here. And everybody's going, that's a bit weird. Everybody goes, okay, maybe there's a technical problem. And the next points are meant to be from Azerbaijan, and I'm going to call up to you, Martin, as perhaps we have lost connection with Naman, who is supposed to be speaking to us in Azerbaijan. Yeah, we seem to have a problem there. And then you move on and it's happened again for Georgia and Montenegro and the whole audience is going, there's something not quite right here. So anyway, as it turns out, it looks as if the jury votes from those six countries were taken away. And the EBU decided that they put an average uh, for the jury scores from similar countries who have similar voting patterns to those. And they said it's because that they noticed some concerning irregularities with the jury votes in the semi-finals. So the EBU goes into a full explanation as to this, and it's very technical, and it goes into 0.0005 of margins and everything. But as I said, the jury votes from those countries were taken away. Back in the old days, though, vote rigging was more straightforward. It was was dictators (laughs) taking on pop stars. It was indeed, um, (laughs) in the most dramatic of ways. So look, let me take you back, Fionn, on 1968. It is the Royal Albert Hall. Katie Boyle is presenting the Eurovision Goddess. And we have a song which possibly most people mistakenly think won the Eurovision, but it didn't. Congratulations and celebrations when I tell everyone that Cliff Richard and his song Congratulations it's sung to this day. He's probably making a mint from that song still. But on the night, he was the big favourite to win. And going into the voting, right down to the very last jury, he was in the lead. The song which was coming right up behind him was Masayel from uh, Spain and her song with the ingenious lyrics, La, 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 um, was the song which is hot on his heels. La, la, la. The last jury, she gets one point and Cliff Richard gets zero points. So the victory goes to uh, Spain. However, in the subsequent years after that, we have learned that Spanish executives were sent, TV executives were sent across Europe and were told that they could go to quite a lot of countries and say, we will buy your second rate um, TV shows and we will buy them for us here in Spain. So, of course, if you're a national broadcaster, you're going, oh, this is great. You want to buy this really bad thing that we've made? We'll happily take that. But allegedly, it's on the premise that you give us some votes at your revision. So this has always been sort of like, um, it's been very well documented how the executives went across Europe. And obviously Franco was trying to get the Eurovision to come to Spain because he wanted to, you know, he wanted to portray Spain as being a very open country, country where you can come and tourists can come. And so Eurovision was, for the want of a better word for it, music washing, you know, from from that point of view. So it's always alleged that Franco and his TV executives bought votes for the song that year. Cliff Richard, you would argue, is the most famous runner up with that song, congratulations, because it has lasted the, the test uh, of, of time as well. An honourable mention must go to one of our own. That's Liam Riley uh, in, in 1990 with Somewhere in Europe. 
had a bit of bad faith there by the Italians who he was up against uh, in, towards the end. I love this. Fionn's trying to create a good scandal here, but I'll, I'll roll with you on this one, Fionn, right? So the year was 1990 and lots of change was going on in Europe and that was reflected in quite a lot of the songs which are written by countries that year. So the Italian entry had a song called Insieme, uh, Unite Unite Europe and then Ireland had a song by Liam Riley, Somewhere in Europe. Um, Liam Riley, fantastic song, um, named practically every single country in Europe that year, you know. And when it came down to it, he was leading for quite a lot of the competition, came to the Italian jury who were sort of like, who were hot on our heels. And when they awarded their 12 points, nothing to Ireland. And then after that, then the Italian entry sort of gained some momentum and ended up by winning the Eurovision Song Contest that year. Um, They won by a hefty margin, 17 points. But... Ireland gave Italy 12 points that year. So I suppose if you take Ireland's 12 points away and if Italy had given us a few points, we could have been closer that year. But yes, I'll give you that one, Phil. I remember Amsterdam as we sail on the canal And as the leaves began to fall We were walking in old Brussels And in that Yeah, Liam Riley... Robbed, probably up there uh, as as one of the the best Irish song not to win uh, the Eurovision. And my thanks to Eurovision mastermind Gareth Mulhall for joining me today. I'm Fiona Jean, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Paul Highland, with sound by Niall McMonagle. Archive clips from Spotify, the European Broadcasting Union, ITV, RTE, and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.